Welcome to Table Talk, a series that will be more of a free-flow discussion between friends on reading, leadership, success, failures, and much more. Chris Boykley and Travis Bender take over this episode of Table Talk to discuss tactics for training and stress management. After the episode, head to firedog.us or on our social media pages to continue the conversation. Welcome. With me today for his second time on the show is Master Sergeant Travis Bender. Travis joined me on episode 24 back in December of 2020 to discuss the DOD Firefighter Rescue and Survival School held twice a year at Grissom Air Reserve Base in Indiana. Today we want to get in the weeds a little bit with training and how to facilitate learning for firefighters. Travis has had the opportunity to learn from some of the best in the business through the Indiana and Georgia Smoke Diver programs. It now has a significant amount of experience leading six classes of the DOD Firefighter Rescue and Survival Course. So I'm confident there will be plenty of actionable tactics to implement whether you're a new crew chief uh, or whether you're the training chief for your entire fire department. So Travis, welcome. Good to be here. Man, so let's get right into it. Talk to us about this idea of flow-based learning. Yeah, so like I uh, kind of touched on the first episode, the uh, flow-based learning comes from, it's a a term uh, I started playing with when I read a book called Flow-Based Leadership by Dr. Judy Glicksmith. She worked very closely with firefighters and specifically the Georgia Smoke Diver Program in um, her doctoral thesis on uh, flow and flow-based decision-making and it's more specifically how firefighters used or operated in a state of flow while on incident, incident command on scenes or specifically for the Georgia smoke smoke diver program, uh, how that organization, uh, comes and uses their methods to facilitate flow within their instructors, within their organization. And through talking with her, reading those books, a couple other uh, books on the subject, but uh, that was the main inspiration for how we train at FRAS and specifically how we train our uh, instructor cadre to implement tactics to uh, facilitate learning. The idea of flow is, just for a review, is... Basically, the intersection, you are in a flow state when your ability perfectly matches the difficulty of a skill. So the example we use a lot is calling a mayday. So a firefighter who has never called a mayday shows up to the firefighter rescue and survival course. And the very first drill we put them through is an air consumption course. Um their heart rate is elevated and they have to drop down when they run out of air and call a mayday. A lot of them had never practiced calling a mayday before. So, or it's been a while since they had done it and doing it under stress adds another level of difficulty to it. So their anxiety level on just performing that one simple skill uh, is elevated. And by doing that, they're, uh, they're definitely not operating in a state of flow. It's a little bit too difficult for, for their ability, right? Um, so I, I kind of picture flow as you're just pinging, right? You said your ability and your diff- the difficulty of the skill are perfectly aligned. 
and you're almost not on autopilot, but just that feeling of like clicking. Is that? Yeah. Like, like a, I got this feeling. And, um, another way of putting it is like you're in the zone or, you know, there's thousands of different ways to describe it. I mean, just with, you know, colloquial terms or whatever, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. It's just, you know, you're performing a skill, you've done it a thousand times, you feel comfortable doing it. You're not, you don't feel like you're behind the ball on anything. So specifically with, with doc, Dr. Glicksmith, when she talked about these, these, uh, incident commanders that were running very complex incidents and they just look like, you know, smooth, they were, you know, clicking on all cylinders. They, they weren't stressed, but also it wasn't so easy for them that they were bored. Right. And these are typically when we look at things that we do, maybe in our daily lives or hobbies or things like that, things that we enjoy doing, we're more likely to operate in a state of flow while doing them. Um, and you can, you know, plug in any of your hobbies. Uh, you know, a, a lot of musicians will, will say that they operate in this state where they're just in this groove. They're not really thinking about the next step. They're just kind of reacting and uh, they're able to perform at a high level, you know, uh, while operating in this, in this mind state. And, uh, you know, specifically for, for what we try to do in the fire service, how it kind of applies to us is we try to, you know, in training, obviously you can't, as an instructor, you can't, uh, you can't say that you're going to induce a mind state in someone that's impossible. Uh, but using, that as a guide of how do I create drills? How do I, um, you know, create a training curriculum? Uh, it's important for that because you have to know your audience as well and their abilities and set up drills that are escalating in uh, complexity and, um, you know, increase their ability to perform that skill and hopefully they're one day able to perform that skill in a flow state is the ultimate goal. But so, so as an instructor, you're thinking about what can we do to optimize conditions for the students where it's not too easy, right? They're not bored, but it's also not too hard where we would risk, you know, creating training scars. Right? Yeah. That's a, that, that's a, that's a big part that, you know, we try to implement is we're not, especially at FRAS, we're not too worried about a, uh, the skill being bored. <laughs> no one's going to be bored coming to FRAS. I promise that. But, um, you know, if we have someone's, their skill level isn't very high, right? And you just start throwing people into a wire box, for example, and they start freaking out. You know, on the other end of that, a tendency for instructors is to just push them through or, you know, oh, you got this and, you know, motivate them through and then they get to the other side or or even worse, you know, yell at them, yelling at them or trying to, you know, impose your ego as an instructor on them. And on the other side of that, they just walk away saying, I never want to do that again. I never want to train again. I never want to see you again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that that's where we create those training scars where it's like every time you think about doing that drill, you have no desire to do it uh, and you have no desire to train or, uh, you know, ultimately get better. Right. Uh, 
So that's definitely what we're trying to avoid. And where we want the students to be, I mean, that's pretty subjective and, I mean, impossible when it comes to a mind state. But the general feeling is we want them to be challenged just enough outside of their comfort zone. And that's where you need to live. I mean, that's where you need to live as a person, right? (laughs) Uh, Just outside of your comfort zone, your ability over reps you start to get better at it and you start to create the conditions better for operating in a flow state. If you find yourself operating in a flow state for everything or you're slightly bored doing something, that means you need to increase the difficulty of the skill. You know, it's getting too easy for you and you're stuck in a, uh, a rut, you know, so you need to constantly challenge yourself. So it seems like it's, it's all about the progression. Right. I think about, um, well, the, the final scenario Friday of FRAS, if day one, you know, you were to throw students into that scenario without any kind of preparation or without the progression that happens through the week, that's a, that's a total training scars moment where not only will they be totally unsuccessful, but they're going to leave thinking, I don't ever want to be a part of anything like this ever again. But throughout the week, by teaching them the skills they'll need to know later in the week, earlier in the week, right? And giving them the tools where, you know, they they get a repetition at a skill they'll need later in the week in kind of a low stakes environment where they're maybe they're in gear, but they're not masked up, they're not blacked out. They get those kind of repetitions along that progression where as the week progresses, their skills are increasing. The level of difficulty is also increasing. And that's what keeps students in a, a flow state, hopefully. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head, man. Like it's, uh, it's, that's what it's all about, you know, increasing the level of difficulty throughout the week. You know, one of the biggest lessons I got from smoke diver, and we've talked about this a lot, you know, is the, kind of zen-like environment they create that the the experience for the student which is you just focus on what you're doing right now don't worry about what's coming next don't worry about the you know what's coming on friday when you're on tuesday friday will work itself out by accomplishing the task in front of you first right the lessons learned here will will help you somewhere down the road and uh and that's kind of what we try to recreate at FRAS to some degree, maybe not to that level, but definitely to some degree, we, we try to recreate that. And, uh, and man, like what a, what a perfect, um, allegory for life, right? Like if I told you every challenge that's going to, that you're going to face in life, you would just quit now. I mean, it's, it's too complicated, right? But that's not how we look at life. We, you look at it one challenge at a time, you overcome that and you move on to the next and then you move on to the next and each challenge you overcome, each obstacle you overcome increases your experience, your knowledge and helps you and better prepares you for the challenges later. Right. And, uh, you know, so that's why this, this course translates much farther and this concept translates much farther than just the fire service, just doing writ, right? It's, it's about building resiliency, building 
the whole airman concept. That's, you know, when the whole airman concept is what, how you live your life as a man or a woman in the United States Air Force, right? And uh, those are the types of things we're trying to instill, you know? So I've heard you talk a bit about that, this idea of hands on resiliency through fire training. And I, I think a lot of people, when they hear, you know, resiliency training, the first thing they, they picture is this kind of like this stand down, like get in touch and talk about your feelings kind of environment. And that might be one piece of resiliency, right? But what I guess kind of hit us with your thoughts on how you build resiliency, you know, specifically in firefighters through hands-on training. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's all about is building resiliency that the whole airman concept, you know, um, I can teach you to go through a wire box, but in order to build resiliency and create better firefighters, better airmen at the core is you have to go through adversity, right? You have to find out, you have to go meet yourself somewhere, right? And where you meet yourself is in a dark place and you have to go there. And it's really hard to, when you're training by yourself, to put yourself in that environment. Most people, you'd have to be very disciplined and very few people can actually put themselves in a place where, you know, they're actually going to grow from like in a workout or in a, um, you know, a training environment that you're putting yourself or maybe just your crew through, right? We have a tendency to back off just when it's short of like the most valuable experience, which is the most adverse experience, you know? And, you know, you can't put yourself there, but you can by signing up to go train with other people with some crazy reservists out in the middle of the cornfields in Indiana when it's, you know, cold and rainy and you're it's early in the morning and you're putting on wet fire gear from the day before and you're standing there getting rained on and it's miserable and now you have to go through a whole day of fire training and then you know you have four more days after that or five more days after that or whatever wherever you are in the course you know and to push all of that discomfort out of your mind to push push out the hunger the weariness the the uh the pain you know and and to go through the training with someone that someone else is 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 creating conditions for you and creating the environment and you know you come out on the other side of it and it's something you could be proud of at the end of the week you get done you look at all the adversity you over you overcame you look at all the obstacles you completed and you look at the like you said the court the the final scenario on friday and all the one of the things i like you know, pointing out is like, Hey, if we told you Monday, what you'd be doing on Friday, you'd be like, there's no way we're, we're going to be able to get that done. But the progressive nature of the course, you trust the process. We give you all the tools you need to be successful. And as long as you implement them and you don't quit, you'll be fine. Right. Um, and yeah, that's what it's all about. You know, just creating that environment and that experience for the student and, you know, that's how we build resilient 
a resilient force and uh and create whole airmen concepts you know man i feel like that's such great just general life advice you know if there's not something in your life that's like pushing the limits or your your perceived limits a little bit you need to go find something because that that's what makes you resilient and adaptable i know it i mean our world has evolved where there, there is so much that we have access to that is easy right we have this instant gratification but i, I can't think of anything that I really value in my life that was easy or instant. Yeah. And, and to, and to expand that even further past, past just the, the frontline firefighter, the airman, or even the crew chief, right up to the organizational level. If you, if we are truly as invested in building resilient airmen, then we need to invest in it. And the best way to do that is send your people to training. And I'm not talking just the certifications. Like, yes, you need to do that. That's part of it. But you need to start building in your budget, sending guys to classes, guys and girls, to classes, right? And FRAS is a very good, affordable way of doing that. All you have to do is pay for to get them here, right? We'll do the rest. There's no cost associated with it. But if you don't, if you don't think the RIT training is the way to do it, send them to FDIC, send them to the fire department training network. Heck, send them to smoke diver, right? If you think they're ready for it. I mean, that's what you got to do as a leader is, is create these opportunities for people to grow outside of our inbred training network that, that we get in a rut for for the same reasons i talked about because we tend to back off when it's short of valuable i always think about those you know career changing experience experiences that that most of us have where you know i'm sure the you know the 20 or the 30 year firefighter thinks back on very specific moments in their career that impacted you know who they became or what, you know, what kind of firefighter they were. And it, it's gotta be, you know, those courses, those runs that were challenging. And I, I think a, a lot of people, or I guess we've heard, I mean, we've heard it commonly from, you know, some of these courses that are, are not a, a check the box, you know, everybody gets a trophy kind of deal that, that people leave and they feel like they're better people in general because of it, that they're better mothers and fathers, they're better husbands and wives because they've been able to have the opportunity to deal with stress in a controlled environment and come out on the other side of it. They're more adaptable because of it. And so talk a little bit about that. How do you, you know, the the term stress inoculation was kind of a buzzword not too long ago. How do you, how do you induce stress in a controlled and, you know, environment to, to get people to a a state where they can, um, where they've got the opportunity to make decisions under stress and to be adaptable and to have that life experience. 
Yeah. So the w- the way we view stress inoculation at FRAS is, um, well, first of all, we feel like that's an outdated, a bit of an outdated term. Um, you know, at least in my experience, every time somebody's used the term stress inoculation, it's always been an excuse for the instructor to be kind of a jerk, right? Uh, to impose, it's kind of an ego-driven environment where this they don't trust the 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 scenario or the drill to speak for itself, and so they have to impose other stressors on them, as if stress is the is the what we're trying to develop, right? I can create a course that is super hard for anybody, right? Anybody can create a a really hard course that's going to stress you out. The point is to introduce stress at a controlled rate to increase the student's ability to perform a task. There's a concept called, uh, and it's in uh, Dr. Glick Smith's book about the 10,000 hour rule, um, where basically these high level performers all agree that it's about roughly 10,000 hours of performing a skill like the example they use is Olympic athletes or um, concert level violinists, you know, things like that. Um, And they all agree it's about 10,000 hours to to reach a level of mastery. Well, we don't have 10,000 hours. We don't have it at FRAS. We don't have it throughout our career. I mean, if you look at, we have 120 shifts in a typical schedule, 24 hour shifts. If you train one hour a day, which how many times do we do that really, truly, if we're being honest, um, you know, that comes out to be 120 hours a, a year multiply that by how many years you are. We don't touch 10,000 hours, right? But that 10,000 hours can be compressed in some studies out there if you perform them under stress, right? So you have to increase the level of difficulty of the skill to reach a level of hopefully mastery one day. Um, The example we use is, uh, you know, masking up, right? There's a technique to masking up quickly. If you do it the same way every time, then you add stress elements to it. And over time, you get so comfortable doing it, you can, you're not worrying about masking up as the, as the uh, technique itself. You're worried about the conditions of the fire ground. You're worried about, you're, you can be more situationally aware because you're not focused or while you're masking up because you're not focused on just masking up, right? Um, so yeah, that's kind of our, our thoughts on stress inoculation, I guess. Um, it's not so much stress as the, as the skill itself. Stress is the tool we use to build ability in a skill. To hopefully reach mastery or this the stage of competency of unconscious competence right where you can perform the skill of masking up without thinking about it at all because you've done it so many times you've got those repetitions under stress and now it's truly muscle memory at work i i think about you know there's a whole spectrum there of you know maybe it's the brand new firefighter at the dod fire academy who is you know, in the the stage of unconscious incompetence, where they're learning what a halligan bar is, much less how to use it effectively. A lot of people 
we see come to our course, in my opinion, are in a, you know, a conscious incompetence stage, or maybe they, they know a fair amount about RIT and about survival skills, but they recognize that there's a, a fair amount of stuff out there that they, that they don't know, or maybe a handful of things that they don't know and they want to figure out what they are. And in our, you know, curriculum, in my mind, the goal is to move from that conscious incompetence to conscious competence where, you know, a student can perform a skill while thinking about it. But to your point, there may be very few skills, you know, throughout the course of your career that you can truly achieve mastery or a level of unconscious competence. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, yeah, the unconscious in or the in unconscious competence is, is what mastery is. Right. And there may be a few skills out there, like you said, that we could do that, like masking up, like calling a mayday. Um, and, and it has to be in as, as realistic training as possible in scenario based environment. And that's why at, at FRAS, we tie every skill uh, as much as possible. We try to tie into a NIOSH report or, um, or uh, I'm sorry, a, uh, a scenario that's based on a, a, an actual NIOSH report or line of duty death that happened in the real world. And, um, and it's just for that reason, you know, t- to create that realism, to give you more to manage while performing the skill that we're actually evaluating you on. So for, for the fire instructor that maybe they're responsible for teaching a class to, you know, everyone from the, the new airman in their flight to the 10 year tech sergeant, you know, who's, you know, got a decade of experience under their belt. What are some tactics that they can implement to facilitate learning? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, first of all, you know, break it down, break down the, the, skill that you're actually wanting to evaluate to its most core basic level, right? Like masking up instead of just evaluating the mask up by, Hey, we did a, uh, a full blown response. And I noticed everybody's was taking too long to get their mask on. Like, let's just, let's just focus on that one skill. Right. And then do it over and over and over again. And then start incorporating more stress to it, right? Um, uh, one of the skills that we do, we call the uh, jack pack, right? Where we jumble everybody's pack and mask up. We put them in a darkened room. They have to perform a search. They have to work together to get the right um, equipment, un- untangle it, put it all back together, put it on their back, come out breathing on air, right? But we don't start on that skill. We start with, hey, just put your mask on. Okay, do it again, do it again, do it again. And then we get that repetition. We get we get it so that they can get their pack and mask on in under 30 seconds, right? And then that builds the framework for the rest of the the week where, you know, by Thursday when they're doing a full-blown writ scenario, they're not focused on putting their mask on. They It's second nature to them. So you got to start with, what's the outcome you want to see? What's the point of this training? You know, do we, you know, do we want to reduce mask up times or do we want to, you know, be 
more proficient at forcing, you know, inward swinging doors or whatever it might be, identify the desired outcome and then kind of build from there. Is there, I guess, what do you think about when it comes to different learning styles? You know, you hear people talk about visual learners versus auditory learners. What are some things, you know, you can do as a fire instructor to, to facilitate, you know, for, for all types of people? Yeah. Well, for, First of all, what, what I always go back to is, you know, a, for those that are, uh, maybe in, in, uh, instructor one or, you know, that just, just finished instructor one, or maybe it's been a while. There's a little good review there, um, about the different learning styles that we have as adults, but also how we learn. Right. And we try at FRAS, we try to incorporate all learning styles as much as possible. And we try to hit all four phases of the learning process, which is we, the, they will observe the instructor demo demoing the skill. They're going to try to imitate it movement for movement. And then they get reps doing that. And then they find out what doesn't work for them, what works for them. They adapt it. And then repetitions under their adapt adaptations of the skill, um, hopefully they reach a level of mastery of it. They're not going to reach that through one week at FRAS, but we lay the framework for them to build on when they leave. And that's why it's so important to have them back as instructors as well. They learn more as instructors sometimes than they do as a student. But hitting all four phases of those, whenever it makes sense to demonstrate in full gear and show as a leader, you need to be doing this skill with them, right? You need to be, it can't be uh, do as I say, not as I do, right? That doesn't work. You have to demo demonstrate it and you have to create the credibility of like, I'm not telling you to do something that I wouldn't do myself. That's why at FRAS, we all you know, everybody that wears the no slack patch, we all wear it because all the instructors have been through what you've been through, right? There's an, we are, we take very seriously integrity of the course when it comes to that. And, uh, whenever we can demonstrate the drill, they're going to imitate, imitate it movement for movement. And then they're going to, uh, practice really in that imitation, um, stage a lot of them will adapt it you know for the nature of the drill and then hopefully whatever works for them they'll go back and develop back at their home base as they instruct you know their firefighters back at their home station fire department and um you know build on it and hopefully reach a level of mastery but then also we we hit off all three phases of learning which is the you know we're going to hit the visual we're going to hit the cognitive, right? And, uh, and then the, uh, kinest- kinesthetic, right? That's the three, but I feel like that's easy to kind of underestimate where as the instructor, you kind of talk through whatever the drill is and feel like in your mind that, you know, the message has been relayed effectively, but any opportunity to incorporate all of those learning styles for, you know, they, they observe you demonstrate the skill exactly how you're asking them to do it in full gear, SCBA, however you have it set up and what a way to, to build buy-in 
right? We've all been in the classes where the instructor, you know, says, well, to bail out, you know, what you're going to do is this and that and this and that. And you're thinking in the back of your mind, there's no way you could do this. But to see it, not only is that valuable for the buy-in, but, you know, they're watching it being done. They're hearing you describe it. Um, what a great opportunity there to give them the why, too. I know, you know, at FRAS, there's a, a NIOSH report that covers um, or that is associated with every single skill and drill. So here's a NIOSH report of, you know, the Denver drill or um, the thousand pound drill where a student, you know, where a, a firefighter died in the line of duty trying to follow a hose line unsuccessfully. And that's why we're doing this. And when you combine all of those with, you know, now they get the, the kinesthetic piece, the hands-on repetitions. That's where it sinks into somebody's brain and stays there. And it's easy to think, hey, like I'm going to describe what we're going to do and we're going to check the box. But it takes, you know, hitting all three of those elements to really make something stick, in my mind, at least. Absolutely. So earlier you talked about the importance of realistic scenario-based training. What are some things that you think about um, as an instructor when it comes to, you know, how you set those kind of drills up and like, what are your, your teaching points for the students, um, you know, debriefing a, a scenario or something along those lines? Yeah. So we, uh, you know, we, like I said, we start with the skill, we, we imitate it. So after they've observed it, they'd, they've imitated it a few times, maybe even started to adapt it. Now we, uh, increase the stress by giving them more to manage in a realistic, um, scenario based event, right? So now not only do they have just the specific skill to worry about, but also, they have to worry about communicating to command, communicating with their team, you know, doing it in zero visibility with their mask on, managing their air. I mean, all these things that accumulate and obviously they're, you know, working hard, their heart rate's elevated. They have all that stress to manage. And when the evolution is over okay, or during the evolution, first of all, we think it's important that we let the scenario play out how it is, right? No, most of the students will not, or none of the students should ever know that an instructor is even watching them, right? We're like a ghost in there. And, uh, you know, they just, they, we let it play out how it's going to play out. We let them solve their problems, how they're going to solve them, just like they would in a real environment. If they choose to throw out all the things we taught them and they think they have a better way, best case scenario is they actually do know a better way that we didn't know about. They execute the drill flawlessly and then we can assess it and be like uh is this truly a better way or is it just a different way and it worked out and that hopefully adds to the development and the growth of the course right so that's the best case scenario worst case scenario is um you know obviously we're gonna stop them if something is unsafe but we're gonna let it play out and they're gonna degrade their physical abilities uh significantly and every time they and the worst case scenario is they go in and they have to redo it, right? And that's just causing more wear and tear on the body, unnecessary work that they have to do, right? And um, 
you know, so somewhere in between is they execute the way they practiced it and they do the skill the way that the way we were hoping they would about that we're going to evaluate it. And then we're going to debrief the incident afterward. Uh, we pull them out. You know, we let them catch their wind for a second and we think it's important to debrief. And, and this is in real life, too. After a fire, any off crew officer, uh, crew chief that's worth their grain salt is going to pull their crew aside and talk about what happened, what went right, what went wrong. And at FRAS, we have a, an unending emphasis on leadership, right? First thing we ask is who was in charge? Who was in charge of that scenario and what went right, what went wrong? And we let them go through the, how they would, how that officer would go through it, how that crew would go through it, uh, talk about it while it's fresh in their memory. And then, uh, let them self-identify all the all the things that went wrong, and hopefully the things that went right. Um, and then, as an instructor, you know we just fill in the holes, right? Like, okay, yeah, you hit, you self-identified all those all those things, and we saw all the things that you saw, and now here's the things that you didn't catch, right? And you know we have a a term called uh, that actually uh, I got from you, which is called fixing like a funnel. And, you know, if you picture a funnel, you're going to work on the big stuff first, and then you can whittle down in the details. You know, if you pull everybody out, if you pull everybody out of a drill and you start going through every little thing that went wrong and it was a complete, you know, soup sandwich of a drill, uh, you're going to lose a lot of details just because they're not going to be paying attention to all of it, right? Or there's only so much your brain can process, you know, after a drill, especially a drill like that where you're, you know, so worn out and and things like that. So when it comes to identifying and correcting issues, start with the big stuff first. Once that works, let's move down into the uh, uh, finer details. And that's where we iron out those, you know, those skills but so the the best thing you can do as an instructor is one set up the training where people can actually make decisions right to to get into that flow state and hopefully stay in it let them make the decisions and let it play out however it plays out and then when you debrief let them self-identify right to to me that is the best possible outcome where you might have your laundry list as an instructor of things that went well or that didn't go so well. But it seems like nine, nine times out of 10, you know, if you've set the training up properly, the student's going to identify that on their own and you don't have to say a thing about it. That's perfect. And then you're just filling in the gaps is what you're saying, right? When you're fixing like a funnel, whatever they didn't touch on, that was the most glaring. Maybe those are the couple things you fix, you know, and then on down to the less important things. Maybe you don't even touch on the less important things because they're not that important compared to, you know, if a, a drill went flawlessly, then you're giving the little critiques of, hey, this could have made this go a little bit better. Yeah, then then you can be nitpicky. Yeah, man, I think about and I have no idea what his name was, but. Um, an instructor at the fire academy back in, you know, 2006 when I went through, and I think he was a Marine staff sergeant, but his whole thing was that the SCBA cylinder was only to be called a cylinder. <laughs> and 
I just remember being, you know, 18 years old and thinking, no matter what happens, don't say bottle. You know, he'd be like, bottles are for after work. Don't say tank. We don't have, tank. we don't have tanks. tanks in the Air Force. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have the same guy? Oh, I think so. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, but I just remember thinking, like, no matter what happens today, make sure you say cylinder. And that was the most important, like, takeaway for me at the time from that training. When obviously that's, you know, one of the least important or <laughs> arguably not important at all things to take away from the training. And we can impose that on the students as instructors. You know, if an instructor has a pet peeve, um, I mean, it, it could be anything. You know, if we lead, maybe a, a scenario is all jacked up and, you know, a live fire scenario and we start with, you know, the truck's not chalked. You know, is that important? Yeah, maybe so. Is it the most important thing that that went wrong during that scenario? I mean, you Probably have to, not. It, right. But you gotta, you gotta recognize, especially for new firefighters, what their takeaways are going to be depending on how you fix what went wrong. So I, I love that visual of, of fixing like a funnel. What was the biggest, most glaring uh, issues all the way down to, you know, the little tidbits that might've made, you know, something easier. That you've you've got to prioritize your feedback in that order. Yeah, and and the big thing to take away too is you know how how much their brain is able to process in those environments. Right, they're worn worn out, broke down. Their heart rates elevated. The understanding as an instructor and a student. One of the things that you know we teach at Frass that, that I think is makes our course unique is teaching the physiology and the the psychology of what happens to your body when when you're in different heart rate zones right and allowing them to come out of the the drill getting their heart rate down to a manageable level letting them giving them chance to process what just went what just went on and letting them talk about it gets them out of that you know that that uh heart rate condition that allows them to be more apt to remember what we were uh, what we're trying to teach them, right? Yeah. For any listeners that aren't familiar with the heart rate conditions uh, Bender just mentioned, um, I highly recommend uh, Colonel Dave Grossman's On Combat. Um, and in there, there's a, a chart that shows different physical and psychological conditions where he describes condition white and condition yellow as, you know, you're at at rest, your heart rate's under 115 beats per minute. Um, and as you start to get ramped up, you get into condition red. And the heart rate's going to be a little bit different for everybody, but just as a ballpark, condition red is 115 to 145 beats per minute. And that's optimal for, for when you're pinging, for muscle memory, for hands-on training. Performance is optimized. But above that, you begin to creep into condition black. So starting at 175 beats per minute, um, that's where stu students are, you know, obviously the same thing applies real world, start to experience different sensory distortions like tunnel vision or auditory exclusion, you know, not, not hearing um, 
parts of the event. And so it's important as an instructor to, to recognize what condition the students are in. In a lecture, you want them to be in that condition white or condition yellow. That's optimal for memorizing, you know, a checklist or something along those lines. But when the hands-on training starts, you want them ramped up into that condition red, that 115 to 145 beats per minute. And so what are some tactics that you use as an instructor to kind of facilitate where the student's at, you know, when it comes to those heart rate conditions? Yeah. So as a student, it's, uh, it's easy to think that, uh, you know, a lot of what we do at FRAS is maybe, um, or at, at, in any training environment is, uh, is haphazard or it just happens, right? Everything we do at FRAS is extremely calculated, uh, down to, you know, we talk about the sins of Slack, which is a, which is a list of things that can go wrong, uh, during a scenario or, or, you know, outside on the training environment, if we see any of these sins of slack, the uh, an instructor, any instructor can come up and do 10 push-ups with you. Now, it doesn't seem like a lot doing 10 push-ups, right? But coming out of a drill and degrading uh, your physical ability, elevating your heart rate at, while you're, uh, you know, doing push-ups is calculated as part of that you know, we're getting you to your body and your mind to a certain condition, right? Just like you talked about, getting you to a certain zone. We're, we're, we're trying to recreate uh, real-life physiological responses in your body and your mind by using push-ups, right? And that's just one example. Another example is in the morning... You know, when they first come in and you're, like I said, you're standing in the, in the cold and the rain and wet gear, maybe, or whatever conditions environment is around you, you know, we start at 8 a.m. So, you know, we got music going, we have the smoke machines going, we have, you know, maybe a little burn barrel to keep warm, right? And they're lined up, we're waiting for the day to start. And then the music cuts off and the, 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 uh, Reveille is played. We render our customs and courtesies, right? And then the day gets started. And all that is designed to ramp you up, right? Get your heart rate elevated. Get you, get you, uh, your mind right, you know? And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's also about creating an experience for the student. Um, you know, I, I know you and I both look up to, uh, Chief David Rhodes, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, I think. Uh, one of the things I've heard him talk about that kind of stuck with me is the importance in an organization to implement ritual and storytelling, right? And so it's about building that environment, that that ritual or storytelling element to create an experience for the student, but also to, you know, facilitate the mind-body uh, aspects that we're trying to trying to hit, you know? And like we said, after a scenario, getting them out, getting them out of their condition red, getting them in condition red before the that's going to create conditions for uh, performing at the highest level and things like that. Right. So, yeah, that's that's how we we create that. So like we talked about earlier, if you, you know, the students come out of a 
you know, a skill or drill, whatever it might be. And you instantly hit them with that laundry list of everything that that you saw and they're still in condition red. That's that's optimal for hopefully the muscle memory that they were just developing. It's not optimal for retaining everything you just threw at them. Exactly, You've got to yeah. give them a minute to let their heart rate come down to get them back into that condition, white condition, yellow for, you know, the words coming out of your mouth to be worthwhile at all. And on that same token, it's important to recognize if a student's in condition black, the opposite end of the spectrum, where, you know, maybe they experience tunnel vision and you can you can actually name that after it's happened. Or we mentioned auditory exclusion where maybe they didn't hear something you know, the radio traffic that was going on or whatever it might be for a, a portion of the drill because they were so ramped up and you can point that out to them. Um, memory loss for parts of, a, of an event is really common where I'm sure most people listening to this, you know, after coming out of a, you know, a touch tough search evolution had to try to piece together, you know, did we search two rooms or three rooms on the second floor? Even though you just finished up that evolution, you know, you can experience some of those perceptual distortions from being so ramped up and from being in or near condition black. And so it's, it's important to name those to hopefully make it charted territory for the student, you know, when they're, they're in that situation, real world. Yeah. And, and you talked about the memory loss, you know, like one of the biggest, uh, or, you know, that aspect of it is. You know, one of the biggest lessons I got from Smoke Diver was every time you change floors, you, what do you do? You call out what floor you're on, right? Yeah. And it sounds dumb. You're in training or you're not even in an evolution and you're just walking up a flight of stairs and you yell out, I'm on two, you know, and what that ingrains in you is always know where you're at, right? And uh, something that we try to incorporate into our radio traffic at FRAS is Always give your, even if it's not emergency mayday traffic, give your location anyway. Get in the habit of doing that. Because what we see all the time is guys go into a uh, training evolution or a writ scenario or, or a scenario where they have to call a mayday and they give a mayday and they give the wrong location. That is huge, right? And if I told them, if I stopped them and we got out of the condition red, we took them out of their gear and in a nice cool classroom, we asked, where are you? They'd be like, well, I'm in a classroom on this side of the building on this floor, you know, no problem. But you start elevating their, their anxiety. You start incorporating the stress that we talked about. And all of a sudden they forget where they're, where they're at in the building. They say they're on the Bravo side when they're on the Charlie side and, and vice versa. Or they say they're on the second floor when they're on the third floor. And, you know, you make that mistake real world. I mean, that's the difference between life and death, you know, and, and we see that all the time in NIOSH reports and line of duty deaths. And so recreating that that muscle memory in condition red, you know, that's why it's so huge. And you talk about the auditory exclusion. A good example of that is, you know, guys will be in there doing a writ, uh, a writ scenario. They'll be at the down firefighter trying to in command will be trying to hit them up on, on the radio, trying to get uh, a status report and they won't even hear the radio traffic. Or what we see a lot of is they'll be sitting there 
trying to communicate, actually they're fo so focused on trying to communicate with command over the radio that they don't hear that they're right next to the downed firefighter's pass alarm going off and command didn't hear a word of what they were saying because the pass alarm was squeaking in the, yeah. in the uh, radio, you know, and so yeah, and trying to incorporate as much of that as possible and, and debriefing them after the incident, like, Hey, did you, did you know that that command was trying to hit you up. And a lot of times they just kind of give you a deer in the headlights look of, uh, they were. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. man, I, I feel like a related coaching point for instructors, you know, when students are in that condition red or condition black is talking about breathing and air consumption. Um, I know Grossman in, uh, in the book on combat calls, um, your breathing as the reins on the horse of emotion. And I, I think that is so true where, you know, maybe a, um, a student's in the entanglement box or maze or, you know, some, any kind of stressful training environment. If you can coach them on how to control their breathing, that affects everything else. Controlling their breathing, you know, having them stop, take a nice inhale, a full exhale is equally as important to blow off all that CO2 that decreases their heart rate and that decreases all these sensory distortions that we talked about. And that is such a valuable skill we can prep firefighters for in training where, you know, maybe real world where you've got a million things coming at you, taking that quick breath, that full exhale does wonders for your decision-making and for all the, the physiological and psychological responses, you know, going on inside your body during a stressful situation. And that's, that's such a powerful thing to have control of. Well, man, we, we've talked about a lot here. Uh, we've gone over, you know, what flow-based learning is, and we've touched on a lot of actionable tactics for facilitating learning specific to firefighters. Tactics like, you know, including all different types of learning styles, having students self-identify issues, um, fixing issues like a funnel. And then here at the end, talking about recognizing the student's physical and, and psychological condition. Uh, man, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? I, I'd say the big thing is if you're an instructor or you're, you know, learning how to instruct, I mean, that's a skill in and of itself, you know. And it takes a lot of practice, just like practicing a skill on the fire ground. It takes a lot of practice at being an instructor, doing things wrong and then fixing it and self-identifying what went right, what went wrong with your training plan and honing in those skills, you know, and, and the, the flow of instructing is just as important as it is for, um, uh, for learning a skill, you know, so, and for the leaders out there, you know, you got to invest in your instructors. You got to send them out to, to take classes. You know, you should spend 90% of your time being a student, but it, you also need to get time under your belt being an instructor. And, you know, what we try to do at FRAS is bring back former students to the course to, uh, to help, you know, bolster our instructor cadre help develop the course for future generations, but then also learn how to instruct. 
And uh, man, we need people to invest in that piece of it. We're, we're running into now, like we're, we're not getting uh, a lot of issues with, uh, you know, getting students in the class. It's getting them back to be instructors. And man, we, we need people to invest in that and, and develop that. So, um, you know, we need to start building it in our budgets if we're leaders, you know, of how we're going to facilitate better instructors and, and uh, make this fire service better than how we found it. Agreed. It's so easy to to have a kind of check the box mentality as a fire service instructor where, hey, I, I've got my fire instructor one or maybe you're the chief and think, you know, hey, I've got these firefighters that are certified fire instructors. But what an incredible responsibility it is to call yourself a fire instructor. There should there should be a real weight to that where, you know, the skills and abilities that, that hopefully you're going to be, you know, showing fellow firefighters may make the difference for themselves, for a brother or sister firefighter, or for a civilian one day. And I think everybody will have those, um, those times in their career. It may only be once or twice over a, a 20 year career, but where, you know, a specific skill or a technique or a mindset um, or any of those things are what directly led to someone making it or not. And that's such a, a huge responsibility. If you're the one, you know, res- you know, responsible for the actual instruction, or if you're the fire chief who's overseeing you know, your, your training division and your fire instructors. Um, and you know, certainly not something to be taken lightly. So man, lots of great stuff here. Thanks again for coming on to the fire dog podcast. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the fire dog podcast, head over to our website at firedog.us. Find us anywhere on social media and listen to all of our podcast episodes on any of your favorite platforms.